This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop. And hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast this week is Shikar Shresta, CEO of Ambient AI. If you look at, you know, kind of the first phase, the only thing that really matters is getting to product market fit. And I think like over time, the success or failure of the company really depends on the strength of the product market fit. You want to be able to answer this question, which is, you know, what do you uniquely offer that someone desperately wants? And unique and desperate are really important words there, because if it's not unique, other people will copy you and the company is not really going to be valuable. And if the customers or prospects are not desperate to solve the problem, you know, it's going to be very hard as a startup to convince anybody to buy the product. This is Shikar. He's a tech entrepreneur on a mission. He builds and leads teams that invent new technologies that transform markets, all with the end goal of delivering magical outcomes for their customers. After several years of R&D in computer vision and artificial intelligence in academia at Stanford and industry at Apple and Google, he realized that the reactive approach to security doesn't work for today's world. And that sparked the idea to found Ambient AI in February of 2017. Ambient AI is a computer vision intelligence company. It's on a mission to transform security operations by preventing every security incident possible without scarifying privacy. They're building solutions for the world that we want to live in. And that inspired me. And hence I invited Shikar to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the world of security prevention. Shikar shares his vision to transform the industry and how the journey is following to make the biggest possible impact. He explains what he has done differently to build traction momentum by creating a strong pool from the market. And lastly, he shares his big lessons learned from dealing with disbelief from customers, investors, and employees, and how to build a software business that cannot be ignored. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, how to design for creating pool from the market. Secondly, by going against conventional wisdom is often the route to creating very defensible differentiation. Thirdly, by early disbelief is a precondition for a good entrepreneurial opportunity. And fourthly, 
why companies should be built to be anti-fragile and how to go about it. Well, hi, Shikar. Welcome on the podcast and thank you for making the time available today. Awesome. Thanks for having me on the show. Super excited to talk to you today, Tan. Yeah, that's the same for me. And I'm going to talk about your company, Ambient. And I mean, on your website, it says fewer alarms, proactive security. Actually, this week I had a guest on my CEO mastermind from the cybersecurity space. And maybe there's a link there, but it's fascinating these days what, what technology can do in order to prevent, well, to make the world a safer place at the end. We're going to talk about that later on. Before we start, if you would have to describe yourself in two or three words, what characterizes you as an entrepreneur? I'd probably say relentless. I like to work on things that give me a strong sense of purpose. So probably purposeful. And then also I'm very driven by curiosity. So I'm just very interested at all times about learning new things and probably at my happiest when I'm learning something new. That's a great trait to have, characteristic to have. I mean, I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect. Chapter four is curiosity. So oh, awesome. it's an essential trait, I would say to run a company that has staying power. Absolutely. So good. Yeah, tell me a little bit about, well, make the shift. Well, maybe start with purpose. And then also, the, well, like, what are you passionate about? And what does purpose mean for you in relation to your company? Yeah. So I think, you know, quick sort of background. Effectively, what my company does is we help organizations prevent physical security incidents from happening. And I can talk about, you know, how we do that. But the genesis of sort of why I'm working on this company and building this company to solve this problem is I was actually a victim of an armed robbery when I was 12 years old. So, you know, way back when, but horrifying incident and just always cared about security and just grew up super paranoid, right? I always was worried about security and safety and what can we do to make things better. Loved tinkering with stuff. So always was building you know, alarm systems and intrusion detection systems and burglar alarms, like those were my favorite projects, I would say, to, you know, DIY kind of projects to come back to again and again. And a lot of what we do now, you know, professionally started working in computer vision and just realized that computer vision was really getting to this inflection point where we would be able to understand what happens in video feeds almost at the same level of fidelity or accuracy as a human in the next sort of five or 10 years. This is, you know, in 2016, when we kind of were thinking about building the company. And the first idea that came to my mind was, okay, if we take this technology and just deploy it on every security camera in the world where it can just understand what's happening. And as soon as it sees something suspicious or bad or a threat event, just lets the security team know so they can go respond and actually prevent the incident from happening or at least mitigate the damage from it, you know, that would just change security forever. So that's kind of the sense of purpose that really drives me. Like I really think security is broken, needs to change and sort of shifting to this kind of future state of security, which would be proactive, real time, you know, effective has a big impact on everyone, right? Like all of us care about being safe, regardless of whatever environment we're in. Fantastic. I mean, you've already answered two of my questions. Like what's the revolution you're starting? That's clearly this one, the kind of making the world a much more secure place, proactive. And I completely agree. If you look at it, we all get used to it and we, we think it's normal, but security is broken. Yeah, it just needs someone to stand up and say, okay, I'm going to fix this, which is why we're talking today. And you also kind of addressed already, like, what's the opportunity to get this right? Which is at the end, you know, a safer place for everybody. Do you have a specific, your go-to market with your company? Who do you address? Who do you believe? 
can you make the biggest impact on? Yeah, that's a great question because I think when we were building the company, you know, we knew this is a great technology, like computer vision can be deployed and we can get it across on every camera and really change security. But the big question was, okay, do we target consumers, mid-market, SMB or enterprise? And I actually did the same calculus the way you framed the question, which is where can we have the biggest impact? So we focus on large enterprises, right? So, you know, the biggest organizations of the world, you know, companies that may have hundreds of security cameras already deployed, but across different verticals. So everything from corporate campuses to hospitals, schools, college campuses, critical infrastructure sites, airports. So all of that sort of large enterprise segment. And, you know, these organizations spend a lot on security already. I think in the U.S. today, enterprise physical security spend is, you know, over $120 billion in that market segment. You know, it's manpower, it's service, like it's very kind of ineffective today. And for all that spend, what we get is effectively not being able to do anything when an actual incident happens. We pretty much just wait and then go back and spend, you know, weeks and weeks to find the video of the actual incident and then do an investigation. But it's so ineffective, right? Because when something bad is happening, the victims, the people involved are looking at the security cameras and they're expecting that somebody is actually watching and will come and help them. And it's just security theater. It's just not how the industry works across the board. How, I mean, I love the way you phrased it. I mean, actually super sad the way you phrased it, but the cameras are there to just have a recording of what happened and then they can do the research. Yeah, they're <laughs> as good as paperweights today, you know, when it comes from a value to real value to security perspective, right? So yeah, big opportunity and big change for the industry. Exactly. Wow. So you said 2016 is where you started to think about the company, but what sparked the, the moment where you say, okay, now we're going to do it. Yeah, what what was required to give that final push? Because I mean, apparently it, it already occupied you for, for since your youth. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I've been working in computer vision for a long time. So did actually my graduate research in computer vision at Stanford many years ago, and then also was building different kinds of computer vision systems in the industry. So did that at Apple and then later at Google. And there were just different applications, right? So computer vision is so broad, like the core theme for me was how do we make machines that can sense and understand the world just like humans do or better? And so we're building those systems for, you know, applications of robotics and self-driving cars and neuroscience and virtual reality. And I think I just had the realization that the biggest sort of inflection point in computer vision is everything we've done to understand images, once that translates to understanding videos, like that may just be, you know, one of the you know, biggest developments in AI or machine learning that we'll see in our lifetime. And that was kind of just starting to happen in like late 2016. And so that was like the technology inflection point, you know, super powerful. We decided, me and my co-founder, who I also met at Stanford, Vikesh, you know, we said, okay, let's start a company and try and see, you know, what we can do with this technology and security. And we spent the first six months in 2017, just talking to everybody we could in the security industry. So I was effectively cold calling, you know, security managers and security directors. And I would just get, you know, 10 or so people on the phone every week. Did that for about six months, spoke to about 200 people, you know, spend nights and weekends in different security operations. And I would say that's what really solidified that this is a really, really massive and a big problem because, you know, it's structurally the same way. Like the way every organization does security is exactly the same. They have all the endpoints, all the cameras, and nobody watches them. And it's completely reactive. And it just got reinforced 
with that experience of like just talking to these you know operators, seeing how the operation actually works. And we felt, okay, we could find product market fit here. And if we did, you know, build a really big, massive company around it. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a common story about the inflection point that at some point, you know, the idea is, is going around in your mind, but the technology is just not there. And at some point, components come together and then it's time. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things I always tell founders is maybe more personally, that trigger moment is you just get to a point where you've thought about it long enough and you're going to bed and you're thinking about the idea and you wake up in the morning and you're thinking about the idea and you're just so consumed by it that you just cannot imagine doing anything else than to work on it and make it, you know, real in the world. I think that's typically the trigger point where, you know, you know, you just have to do it. Like it doesn't really matter if you're successful or not, you know, you, it's just a problem worth solving and putting all the energy into. Yeah. Fascinating. Talking about like the point that you just make about getting from idea to making it a real product that's going to deliver value to the world. The way you started, I mean, I'm always interested, like what are the typical choices that you made? So one of the things that I like to understand is uh, what did you do? What did you not do? Like, where did you put your focus in order to create a product that was going to really yeah, move the needle in terms of what the market was expecting? Yeah, it's a great question. I think of like building these companies in like different phases. And if you look at, you know, kind of the first phase, the only thing that really matters is getting to product market fit. And I think like over time, the success or failure of the company really depends on the strength of the product market fit. And when you start with like, you know, all you have is this technology inflection point or a technology idea or a product idea. But then from that point, getting to product market fit is like more art than science, right? Like you don't really know how long it'll take, but you have to explore, you know, talk to as many prospects and customers as you can. And the way I sort of frame it is at the end of it, you want to be able to answer this question, which is, you know, what do you uniquely offer that someone desperately wants? And unique and desperate are really important words there, because if it's not unique, other people will copy you and the company is not really going to be valuable. And if the customers or prospects are not desperate to solve the problem, you know, it's going to be very hard as a startup to convince anybody to buy the product because, you know, it's just so much less risk for them to buy technology from an incumbent or just wait it out until the incumbents gets to, you know, this particular technology trend in the market over the next three or four years. Let me make a small interruption here. Shikar just made a critical remark about what it takes to build a product that's remarkable. It needs to be unique and customers need to want it desperately. It does go back to the broken triangle I described in my book, The Remarkable Effect, where I advise to create a list of problems that keep your customers awake at night and value rank them against three simple but powerful questions. On a scale of one to 10, how valuable is this to solve for your customer? How urgent and critical is this to solve for your customer? And what is your ability to exceed expectations? And this way, it becomes a data-driven exercise, almost a formula. Multiply answer one with answer two and answer three, and you'll end up with a number. And you want this number to be as close as possible to a thousand. And that's where you focus. The rest, you'll drop. This is a typical trait that remarkable software companies master. And you can master these traits as well. And the first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. So just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark within the first 10 minutes. Back to the interview. So I think that's how I summarize it, which is you just want to get to a state where you know, hey, this is what I build. It's very unique. 
and I can solve these specific problems for the customers. And I know they're desperate for it because if they don't deploy this technology, the next time an incident happens, you know, they're not going to be able to know about it or respond to it or do anything, right? Like they're just going to be kept, you know, caught flat-footed again. And so once the customer realizes, okay, this is the before and after, like this is the delta or the change in impact in the operation. Once I have software running like this, you know that, okay, you have something like it just starts getting pulled by the market instead of you having to sort of push it. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's how I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I am completely on those words. In my book, I talk about the triangle and it's like, it needs to be super valuable and also critical in their agenda, which I think is where the the desperate part comes from. And of course, you you need to solve it in a way that exceeds expectations, which is also where the desperate is coming from. Actually, I was listening to a podcast earlier this week about starting greatness. And one of the interviews was about exactly product market fit. And one thing that also what I had to smile was, if your product is being used by the customer, you take it away, you know, when you're product market fit, when they scream. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, yeah, funny you mentioned that because I actually learned a lot of what I know about product market fit from Andy Ratcliffe, who... Yeah. You know, I think find the phrase and he teaches a class on, I think it's called aligning startups to their markets at Stanford at their business school. Yeah. And I think out of all the things I learned about startups, probably what I learned from Andy about product market fit has served me the most in my journey of building Ambient for sure. Exactly. I think it was an interview with him, but yeah, and suddenly you know it, but to going back to my question again, obviously it's been a journey. When was that point where it was like, okay, now it's there. And what changed or what had you added? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I don't know if there's ever a point in building a company where you say it's just there. I would uh-huh. say, you know, once you have like initial corpus of say, you know, four or five customers, you know, paying customers that are using the product, getting value from it, you know, there's product market fit. But again, I think then the next phase starts, which is, you know, initial product market fit is almost for like a MVP product, right? It's very focused on one use case, but it doesn't quite complete the whole arc of like delivering value to the customer. So once you get to that state, you know, okay, there's enough, you know, unaffiliated customers that have bought the product that, you know, there's product market fit, but then the next phase is really working with them closely to get from that MVP to almost like a whole product. Also deepening the product market fit. So getting from like this early PMF to, you know, strong PMF where you know that, you know, they won't just buy, but they can deploy and they can get value and they can renew and they can expand and they can add additional use cases on this particular product. And I think that's what you have to do before you truly start scaling, go to market. I think a lot of founders sort of do that, you know, prematurely, but it's very hard to build a big business with a leaky bucket. So you almost have to go slow early on to then be able to accelerate and go fast as you start really scaling out distribution in the market. Yeah. You know, you make such a valuable point there. So many think they have it and it's not repeatable and it's so expensive. All the wrong decisions are being made. Talking about decisions there or like decision points. What has been a very hard nut to crack in this process? Were there moments where you said, okay, left, right? Likely there's many of those, but which one do you remember remember as a really important one? I think there's been, I would say, multiple of these. I think in general, you know, it's a new product category for the market. And not a lot of the security industry today is used to consuming SaaS or, you know, buying, you know, AI and computer vision. And so, you know, lots of sort of interesting nuances if I had to think about like one left or right, I would say it's probably 
you know, this idea of we started the company and we said, okay, let's take computer vision, make security proactive. And, you know, you get this common wisdom, which is, you know, focus on one or two use cases. And so in our you know, product, a use case is like a threat event that we could detect with computer vision, like a particular type of suspicious behavior that we can detect. And so we started with detecting something like a person brandishing a weapon. So if you have an active shooter situation or you know, workplace violence incident or something like that evolving, and a security camera sees there's a person with a weapon at the site, you know, just detect that, let the security team know so they can go you know, inform law enforcement and basically initiate the appropriate response to be able to contain that incident. And we got a lot of traction with it with customers. Like we started seeing the poll and customers wanted to deploy that signature or that detector. But very soon we had to make this trade-off or sort of decision of, okay, do we just stay and, you know, keep, you know, improving this particular, you know, threat signature and just like sort of scaling the business around it? Or do we want to play, you know, a bigger game here to really make all of security monitoring proactive and just go beyond just one signature and actually extend it to all types of suspicious events, right? Like if somebody is casing around a building or tailgating or trying to steal something or, you know, potential assault that may be happening or someone has a seizure and they fall, like all these different events that could happen in kind of the trails of an actual security incident, like should we go after all of those? I think it was a difficult decision just because it kind of steers away from like conventional wisdom. And we said, we really wanted to fully solve this problem. Like we want to make sure that once a customer deploys this platform, you know, against a whole range of different threat vectors or incidents, we can actually protect and help them prevent those incidents, not just be focused on that one signature, because who knows, you know, what the anatomy of the next incident is, you know, they just evolve differently and it took us longer. And so, you know, we stayed in stealth for a long time, invested a lot in R&D, you know, built a whole repository of these threat events. So we look for about 125 different things today. So wow. anything you could think of, you know, as something bad that could happen at a site, we probably have a signature for it and it's doubling year over year. So we're just growing that extensively, but yeah, somewhat, you know, contrarian, difficult decision, but, you know, clearly we're seeing the benefits of that from being able what to What type of benefits do you see from the decision? It may be unlikely that a site will have, you know, a very catastrophic incident happen, you know, very frequently. So if you look at, you know, how a security director would think about their risk matrix, there are like incidents that could be very catastrophic, but are also very rare. But then there are things that are very frequent and happen almost every day. So as I said, like somebody you know, trying to steal something or casing or breaching the perimeter of a site. And I think those are just connected because an active shooter incident isn't just somebody brandishing a weapon. It may actually begin with a person breaching the perimeter, you know, then there may be the actual person brandishing weapon, and then you may see crowds forming and, you know, people falling on the ground. And so the anatomy of an incident is very rich. And so you can only get true prevention if you, you know, target the technology to solve or sort of look for a whole range of these different suspicious events. And that's when you can automate, you know, human monitoring. Like that's when you can say, okay, I don't need people sitting and watching cameras because anything my trained analysts could look for the AI or computer vision technology can also do that and get exactly. that business for you. Yeah. yeah, completely agree. Yeah, it's interesting to and that's I think it's a big dilemma, but you can solve one use case really, really well, but like, what's the value of that? And I think it's needed a combination of. Yeah. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. 
Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. Yeah, I mean, in those lessons learned, one thing that I always find interesting to get to see what answers you give is, was there any counterintuitive lesson that you learned and that made a difference for you? Like something that you completely didn't expect, but still, yeah. I would say, you know, in the early days, I think I have like more wisdom and I'm calmer about this now so I can share this lesson. But in the early days, you know, you just get a lot of disbelief around a new idea, right? You have investors who don't believe and you're trying to recruit people and they don't believe and you're talking to customers and a lot of them don't believe. And I think I used to get deterred by it a lot. I think now my perspective is that early disbelief is almost like a precondition for a good entrepreneurial opportunity. Because if everybody immediately agrees and believes in it, it's just an idea that's too obvious. And, you know, it's an idea better suited for, you know, a VP at an incumbent who's running product or, you know, GM for a PL owner or something like that to drive by committee and work on, right? Like it just favors incumbency. And so the idea of being non-obvious and, you know, that early disbelief that you face is almost like validation, you know, and you'll still find like two or three out of 10 people you talk to who have that prepared mind, like they've done a little bit of the thinking around the idea, just like you have for some reason. And you just focus on them and you just make them successful. You know, you just get those investors, you get those customers, you hire those employees and over time that just, that set just starts expanding. So in a very, not something I expected early on, but having seen it work, you know, somewhat counterintuitive. I love that point that you make, because that's so true. If you ask 10 people and nine say, I don't believe, and there's one that (laughs) says yes, there's still so much opportunity to say, yes, we go full for that, because that's exactly what you're looking for in that beginning. Small, intense fire. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's maybe the right analogy for it. Small, intense fire. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's the bell curve. You know, the innovators will say, love it, need it. And that's where you need to go from the first place. And that is what transformation is really all about. Yep. Yep. How many times have we said in our life, do we really need this? And later on, it's like it's mainstream. Everybody has it. and You cannot live without it anymore. Yeah, and it always starts process. like that. It's a long process, right? I think as a technologist, like early on, I believe this. And I think a lot of people believe it is you have a great piece of technology and immediately, you know, because it's obvious to you, right? Like if you think about this idea around Ambient we're talking about, it's so obvious that the camera should just tell you when something bad is happening, right? Like that's why they're there. And so you just believe the entire market will get to that realization immediately. But, nope. you know, there's this whole diffusion process, as you alluded to, and you have to kind of go on that journey to eventually get to a point where, you know, it's mainstream and then people don't yeah. believe it, right? Like, how can you have a camera that's not monitored? I mean, how could you have a security operation with unmonitored cameras, right? Like, you can see that state, but it's a journey to yeah, be able to get right. to that. Yeah, I think it's, a, I mean, that whole thing around preventative work is completely underestimated. I think I hear it in a lot of cases that, okay, to act and to react, yes. And of course, that's where all the focus is going because faster decision-making when something happens, but to prevent it is a whole different game. 
Yeah, and also and the world is better off by preventing whole, things altogether. Yeah, and you know, it's kind of almost the whole purpose of security, right? They're there to prevent the incidents from happening instead of just reacting from it, right? Like proactive. And, uh, yeah, that's true. That's completely true. When you got your, when you found your product market fit, when it became time yeah, to go to market in a broader perspective, what did you learn from growing from, I mean, how many customers do you have right now? So, you know, lots of, you know, large Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies that have adopted the product now, many of them over seven figures a year. So it's very large ACV, you know, enterprise focus. And the company's approaching about 100 employees now, growing yeah. super fast. And we've raised, you know, over 50 million in venture capital, primarily from Enrique and Horvitz. Yeah, but well, talking about that, Fortune 100 companies are not the easiest one to sell to. It's like big projects, heavy legal contracts, procurements getting in the way. How did you scale from where you were in the beginning with early product market fit to where you are right now? What is the biggest lesson learned there? Yeah, so I think two lessons. So one is, you know, once you've chosen the target market where we said, okay, we're going to go after large enterprise, you almost have to build the company around the target market you're going after because you have to understand in the DNA of the company that, these are going to be long sales cycles, enterprise buyers, the product will go through a lot of approvals and scrutiny and so you have to invest in you know, security, reliability, and just build something targeted for enterprise. And then just understand that motion because it really sets the cultural tone for the rest of the company as well. Right? A company selling to mid-market or SMB just has a different tone than one that would go after enterprise. So I think that's one big lesson. I think the second big lesson was you know, we started with founder-led sales. So it was basically me being involved in, you know, almost every sales conversation and just driving that. And I'm a strong believer that if you're creating a new product category and it's a deeply technical product and you're selling to enterprise, it's just, there's just no other way to ramp up scales than the, you know, one of the founders or somebody who's been there, you know, building the whole thing from the beginning to just drive that early, you know, sales process and like get some wins to learn what works and what doesn't. So we did that for a while, you know, got these wins, got the product to scale, and then just started scaling out the go-to-market team. And it's, you know, it's a process. So you kind of work with them closely, get a few people ramped, and then slowly as they start hitting ramp, you have something that's repeatable, scalable, and then you can expand it wider. But you know, no easy answers. It's almost like you have to kind of go through all of those steps to be able to get to something that's truly scalable. And you know, most SaaS companies I would say like fail there, right? Like I think getting to product market fit is really difficult, but then after product market fit, getting to truly a repeatable, scalable go-to-market model is not something many companies are able to do. And nope. the data there is, you know, it takes 12, 13 years these days to, you know, to take an enterprise software company from founding to IPO. Like that's the average time. And it's because, you know, getting to that go-to-market fit and scale is a really complicated thing that you have to conquer. Yeah. If you look in hindsight, like, what lesson would you like to know about now, well, then, that you know right now? It's a great question. It's <laughs> a great question. I think I would just do a lot of things faster, you know, not wait for all the data and just maybe act on those things faster, you know, maybe hire faster, you know, build a team faster and not wait for having like a perfect repeatable process before I thought, okay, we can now staff up a team and start scaling this. 
but it's one of those things that's very easy to say in hindsight, <laughs> very hard yeah. to do when you're living through the moment, but that would probably be, you know, what comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever been to the point? Well, it's I hear it a lot, by the way. And it's of course, if we all all know the things in hindsight, and it all looks simple then. And of course, these are easier easier things to do. But yeah, what is? And you say that when you started to kind of build your go to market team, what was the lesson that you learned when it comes to kind of really handing over full control and full authority to the team? When did you say, okay, now I can take my hands up? What needed to be right there? Yeah. I don't know if I've still taken my hands off. <laughs> I think, you know, as I said, like I think it very much is a process, right? So I think you start with, I think the first few people you hire are also, they have to be entrepreneurial. So, you know, they kind of tap in this idea of learning and evolving because with every customer conversation, you just have to realize that you still don't have the product and the positioning and the messaging that can scale to, you know, hundred percent Salesforce. Like it's still kind of in the early market that you're selling into. So just taking in that kind of curiosity driven approach, like regrouping after those conversations, understanding, Hey, what did we learn? What can we change in the product, the positioning, the packaging, the pricing, whatever it may be. And then quickly sort of adapting that into what we do next in the go-to-market and just doing that, I think, until, you know, you get to a point of seeing, you know, parts of this repeat. But I think, you know, in category creation, especially when you have like a market chasm to cross, I think somebody that's really piped into the nervous system of the market, which is typically, you know, somebody who has product instinct or one of the founders should actually be fairly involved, in my opinion, in the go-to-market build out, till, you know, reasonable level of scale because the market just keeps shifting, right? Like we just had pandemic for two years and now, you know, we're looking at, you know, this market correction and things keep changing and you want to just be able to react to them quickly. Yeah. So how did, I mean, talking about that, I'm writing my second book and which is about exactly all those lessons learned during the pandemic. One of the questions I tried to answer is what do you do different to not only survive a pandemic like we just had, but actually come out stronger? Any lessons learned there? Have you done anything specific to come out stronger? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, companies should be built to be anti-fragile and, you know, which is weatherproof. So I think I've always believed in, you know, keeping capital efficiency as kind of a core tenet of building a company. So, you know, even when you raise a lot of venture capital, you just want to make sure, you know, company kind of exists in the balance between the capital market, the target market, and kind of the talent market. And you want to somewhat be in balance with all three of them. So, you know, if the target market is being impacted, like customers may not buy, like you want to be able to adjust to those things, you know, reposition the product and then push in aggressively. And then when you have macro changes and you're capital efficient, you know that your unit economics are good and you're making money with every sale you do, you're generating revenue. You're generally in a stronger position than most of your competitive set to be able to keep pushing on that advantage. And it just changes the relative market dynamics on the other side of it. So, you know, just kind of always treating, you know, capital efficiency as a core tenet, you know, really understanding that the go-to-market is working, where to invest, where to not invest, I think is really valuable as you, you know, navigate a changing, evolving macro, I feel. There's absolutely wise advice there. And I like the way you kind of phrase it there with the balance between the three capitals, which are indeed like it's the financial part, it's the talent part, it's the market part. They need to be in balance. If they're stronger, you keep you get strong attention to that. It makes you a stronger company. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, my first book that I already been on the market now for two and a half years, well, for two years now, it's about the 10 traits that define those SaaS companies that we start talking about. 
mm-hmm. but also keep talking about. <laughs> that fascinates me always. Like the big lessons to learn there. What do you believe is required to create a software company that people, yeah, that's lasting and that people keep talking about? It's a great question. You know, I think about this a lot, of course. And I think if you just start at the data to understand the magnitude of this problem. So if you look at, you know, all publicly traded companies today, and you say how many public software companies exist that are generating, say, more than a billion dollars in revenue, you know, that's kind of what I would say, lasting scale, right? Like a franchisee technology software company, you know, it's maybe 40, 50 companies. And then think about the number of companies that get started every year or number of companies that get funded at the Series A, B, C, D stage and to complete disconnect, right? Like it's just a very big, big gap, right? Like the odds are always stacked against you. But I think like there's a few different like kind of things that need to exist for a company to become a big lasting franchisee company. And the first thing is like the addressable market needs to be big, even if not at the beginning, you know, as the market matures, it needs to open up a big addressable market because if there's no big addressable market, you know, there's no potential to build anything big. I think the structure of the market is also important, which means, you know, some sort of a tailwind, it can be technology driven or something that impacts demand, but effectively the way to look at it would be something that pushes the maturity of the market to be fast because when a market matures, you know, you'll see that demand get pulled out of a startup and you can't always predict it. And so some people call this timing, but the key there is you almost want to have the company ready, you know, built out product and ready to scale maybe, you know, a year or two before the market maturity really begins. So you're in position to be able to capture against that opportunity. And this is one of those things is very hard to predict when you get started. You're sort of like spitballing and saying, okay, maybe the technology matures in five years and Maybe, you know, people start realizing the true impact in seven and you never know, but I think it has a big impact on like what will be a lasting company. And I think the third thing is really the people, right? I think a lot of people may not have the fortitude to just like keep running through all the obstacles and all the brick walls that you will be, you know, you're going to face on the journey. Like it just never gets easier. You know, I know a lot of people who are running you know, $20 billion publicly traded companies. And I talk to them and, you know, many of them are invested in our company and it just doesn't get easier, right? Like the macro is always changing and the technology industry, it's all dynamic and you keep reacting and you just have to keep pushing and just be relentless, right? Like if you just decide that, you know, you're just not going to stop because you see that eventual market, you know, that the technology exists and it's going to solve this problem and you're just going to go at it for however long it takes to make it successful, I feel you win. And that's the kind of company that people, you know, keep talking yeah. about. Well, I mean, it goes back to the kind of the traces you talked about yourself, relentless purpose and curiosity. And I mean, all of these things come back in this list. The discussion around total addressable markets, it's a very interesting one in itself. And I think you made the right point there. It needs to be big eventually, yeah. but not in the beginning. And I think yeah. with, I mean, a lot of the discussions I hear, even with very small startups in stealth, that they are obsessed with a large stem where my point always is, okay, go and own a particular segment of the market and create traction and grow from there. What is your point on that? So absolutely agree. I think like you want to grow in concentric circles. I will say that when people use the word total addressable market and how we as founders size it in the early days, you know, it's all made up, right? Truly, when you think about how much of a market is addressable to a startup, 
only the early market is actually addressable and only in specific segments. And in some ways, that's a good thing because, as you said, you want to be a big, you know, big fish in a small pond early on so you can focus and just be able to dominate that early market. But the characteristic you're looking for is that early market over time keeps maturing and just opens up more and more addressability in that eventual, you know, TAM. And that gives you something big and, you know, something big to be able to scale into because the worst situation for a company, because really, if you think about it, like a large company is almost like a collection of cash flows and each cash flow is like a product, a target market, an addressable market kind of a pairing, right? Like it's like that triplet. And so you have to make sure that that triplet is like big enough, like that addressable market is big enough to be able to scale into it. Otherwise you just stall growth and then you need to find the next product with the next target market with some addressable market that it opens up, or you're just not going to be a big franchisee companies that keeps, you know, compounding value over years. Yeah. Oh, there's so many questions that come up right now, but I mean, looking at the time, I'm going to ask about two or three more questions before we wrap up. From the tidbits of wisdom that you've gained over time now, being the CEO of this company for about, let me see, six years now, what does it do and what is a possible don't that you would, in terms of advice, you could give to tech entrepreneurs that aspire doing something that you're doing? So I'll start with the don't and then I'll go to the do. So I think you should not start a company for the sake of starting a company or just go through the motion of doing a startup. You know, just because you think somebody will write you a check to fund you or, you know, the space is interesting or hot, like it's just not enough. Because as I just said, you know, the best case out of those 50 or 60 companies are generating billion dollars in revenue in the public markets, it on average takes them 12 to 13 years since founding. That's almost half your effective work life. So in the best case, it's going to take that long and it's going to be really hard. And so I really think you should only start a company when you get to a point where you know you're just going to spend a long amount of time working on this idea and trying to solve this problem, just working through all the obstacles and the maze and the twists and the turns. And none of that will deter you because you just care about it. You have some sense of purpose or some connection or passion to that problem, right? So I would say that's like the don't or or like when you should start it. And then I think the do... I would just go back, I think, to what we talked about early on is to, you know, not get deterred by rejection or, you know, disbelief early on and just focus on this idea that just like out of 100 customers you talk to, only 15 to 20 are in the early market that's addressable. That also applies to investors. That also applies to employees. There's only a small segment of each one of these constituencies that has the prepared mind for your idea at that time. And you just want to focus on them because you're going to have a shorter sales cycle, if you will. You know, they've already thought about the idea. You'll be able to hire them faster. They'll believe they'll have independent conviction. You'll be able to raise capital in an easier fashion. And that's how you kind of get through these stages instead of trying to evangelize and convert everybody you talk to. It's just not going to happen in the early days. Yeah, it's going to completely... How do you say that? Make you miserable. And I think that's exactly where segmentation and positioning comes in. And I like the way you phrase it in terms of the different audiences, the employees, the investors, and the market itself, because they they play a role in all of these three categories. Yep, absolutely. Really, really good. So yeah, I mean, for the people that are listening, the audience here, how can they help you? What question do you have where possibly the audience, B2B software vendors, B2B software professionals, 
How can I help you if you could ask a question? I mean, I would love to hear, you know, I think like security is one of those problems that's like relatable to everyone just yep. as a person, right? Like if I'm sitting and waiting in a hospital lobby, I actually care about how safe I am because I don't want somebody barging in and like doing something bad and the security team not knowing or not being able to respond. So I'd love to hear from people, you know, what their connect is in terms of what they think proactive security, you know, should look like, like what are the types of incidents and what types of environments are top of mind where we should target the technology and kind of get them to shift to this proactive security posture, you know, before I would say the rest of the mainstream market and yeah, get any feedback or thoughts around that. I think Great that's all helpful. Great question. It's a good one to reflect upon. And I think I really like the way you phrase it. Like what should it look like proactive security? Because that is something that is sort of a dream in your mind. Yeah. And it's, it means something different for everybody. And this is exactly how far you can stretch the bar because we can have a perspective on it ourselves. But if the market is having a different perspective, Great, great question. Well, thank you very much. uh, Safety, right? Like just feeling safe in an environment really unlocks or allows a person to be creative and productive. And I feel like when people don't feel safe, there's not much else that we can do, you know, or tap into our brilliance or curiosity or be productive or any of that. So, you know, really that's the long-term mission of being able to, you know, engender that sense when you walk into an environment, like there's effective security, it's not very visible. It's just part of the environment. And you know that if something happens, they're going to know and be able to respond to it. And yeah, that's kind of the mission we're on and hopefully the state we can get to. Great. Where can people go to find out more about your company, Ambient AI, and where can they find you to say hi to you? Yeah, so they can go to our website. So it's A-M-B-I-E-N-T, ambient.ai. I am not super active on social media, but I do have a Twitter account. So if you search me by my first name, last name, you can probably find me there. And if you also reach out to me directly, you know, Matt, S at ambient.ai, I do check all my email and I promise I'll respond to you. It may just take me a while, but I will get back to anybody that writes to me. Great. Well, thank you very much, Shikar, for story that you shared today and the lessons that you've learned yeah the perspective that you haven't think it was i got inspired in a number of ways and i hope my audience takes as much away from it as i did good luck on the next part of the journey yeah glad to hear that ton it was so great to be on your show thanks for having me and hope your listeners enjoyed this too it will for sure thank you very much and this ends my conversation with shikar i hope you enjoyed it and if so please leave a review on itunes and if it inspired you Please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Shikar Shresta, CEO of Ambient AI. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, Share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. 
And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.